Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us into God's presence this morning. Um, So, holiday season has begun, and already it seems like so many things have changed. So many things are different. This is a season when we like our traditions, when we like the things that are familiar and, and known, and yet so many unknown things. I mean, to take just one example, right now, I'm preaching from the top level of the platform, and I used to preach from the bottom level of the platform, and it's just totally changing everything about Advent, and I can't handle it. And if you were in the room right now, you would be laughing at that joke. You would be laughing so, so hard. I mean, our our Thanksgiving plans, um, they did get changed. We were going to do Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving. Uh, There was some cold and runny nose, so we canceled Thanksgiving on Thanksgiving, and we did Thanksgiving on Saturday instead. But you know what? We're flexible and we're adaptable. So this Advent season, the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, this Advent season, we decided that we wanted to pick a theme that was a really great, familiar, maybe even comforting theme. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about Advent as a season of comfort and joy. And I want to start by talking a little bit about comfort. See, we are people who love comfort, right? You buy a new shirt, and your friend says, oh, that's a really nice shirt, and you say, oh, it's so comfortable. We we buy our beds based on whether or not they are comfortable. My daughter, Esther, she wants new slippers for Christmas, and I asked her, Esther, what kind of slippers do you want? And she said, I want the slippers that are like a blanket wrapping around my foot because that's the most comfortable. We are people who love our comfort. And the reason for that is pretty obvious, I think. We actually live in a somewhat uncomfortable world. Years and years ago, when people had to sleep on the ground, that was uncomfortable. So we have comfortable beds. Years and years ago, when our clothing was made out of animal hides, that was uncomfortable. So we like our soft, comfortable clothes. And if, like me, for Thanksgiving, you ate a lot of comfort food, even though, if I'm honest, maybe I ate so much that the comfort food made me feel a little uncomfortable. But even with those somewhat uh, lighthearted examples of comfort in our minds, we recognize that our desire for comfort actually goes much deeper as well. See, because our our discomfort in the world isn't simply the physical discomfort of clothing or footwear, but rather it's the discomfort of a world that is filled with a lot of pretty hard uh, loss, grief, suffering, some pretty hard, uncomfortable circumstances. And so it's not just that we like comfortable things, but often in seasons like Advent, we actually long for a deeper comfort. So here's the question I want to ask you to kick off this Advent season of comfort and joy. In your life today, if you look around at all that's going on around you, all the good and the joy, all the challenge and the struggle, if you look at your life right now, where do you long for comfort? Because what we're going to find is that often when we can identify the place of our greatest longing for comfort, which if we're honest, might be the circumstance of our greatest 
discomfort that will lead us, that will guide us in this quest that we have. And ultimately, here's my hope. My hope is that during Advent, we will not just long for comfort and identify where we long for comfort, but rather that you, that me, that us as a community will find not just a comfortable shirt or a comfortable bed or a comfortable pair of shoes, but that this Advent season, we might find true comfort. We're going to be spending a bunch of time over these next four weeks in the Old Testament, specifically looking a lot at the prophet Isaiah. All of the prophets, in all that they spoke to Israel, they spoke both to the people of God, Israel, thousands of years ago, but they also were like signposts, guideposts, way markers, pointing towards the day when God would eventually make complete all of his plans, not just for his people, but for all people. And so as we read about the prophets, we're going to hear some words that God spoke to his people thousands of years ago, but what we're going to find is that the words he spoke long ago still have great meaning for us today. And as we talk about comfort, it turns out that ancient Israel is a really uh, appropriate place to turn because ancient Israel knew what it was like to be in uncomfortable circumstances. Israel understood discomfort maybe more than anyone else. In just a minute, we're going to read that beautiful passage from Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. We're going to read that one more time. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to do so right now. But before we talk about Isaiah 40, I want to talk about what comes right before Isaiah 40. Namely, Isaiah 39. That's what comes right before 40. And in Isaiah 49, we get a really depressing picture of what's happening to God's people. See, here's the backstory. God's people have been unfaithful. They've been ignoring God. They've been disobeying God. They've been going their own way. And they've basically been walking themselves into a disaster. And so at the end of Isaiah chapter 39, we hear from the prophet that some terrible things are going to happen. First of all, the king of Israel was just showing off to the king of Babylon everything in the, in the nation of Israel. He was showing off their treasure. He was showing off their land. And then Isaiah says, Israel will lose everything in its nation. This stuff you were just bragging about, you're going to lose all of it. And then on top of that, the prophet predicts, not only are you going to lose all your treasure, but it says you're even going to lose your descendants, your children and your grandchildren are going to be taken from you and brought to be servants for the king of Babylon. Isaiah 39 is one of the most uncomfortable, painful, terrible passages in all of Scripture. Micken and I, maybe you'll understand this, um, we've been watching a little more Netflix recently in life. You know, I don't know, we've just found ourselves at home a little more often. And for some bizarre reason, we've been watching this show, and it's about a British family whose young daughter was abducted 
and they lost their daughter. And I kid you not, every single time we sit down and turn on that show, I think to myself, why am I watching this awful show? Because all I do is I sit there and think, there is nothing more brutal in life than to consider what would it be to lose a child. It's like I sit down and it rips my heart out every single time. And in Isaiah 39, the last word we hear is that the children that were formerly royal children will be taken from their family and become servants in a foreign and oppressive empire. It is a brutal circumstance. And so then I find myself thinking, what what would the people of Israel be thinking? What would they be feeling? What would be going on in their hearts when they're in this place of suffering? Because what we find is Isaiah 39 is looking towards, it's saying about to come is this uh, uh, Babylonian takeover. But the moment we step into Isaiah 40, it seems that we are now in the midst of the Babylonian takeover. The Babylonians have already come. They've already destroyed Jerusalem. They've already taken people and and removed them from their homes. Isaiah 40 is written from the perspective of Israel is suffering. Their nation has been destroyed and they are no longer their own people. And so we wonder, what's it like to be in that circumstance? And I can only imagine that if I was an Israelite, there would be some heavy questions weighing on my soul. Because, see, as an Israelite, I believe that God has chosen the nation of Israel. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you so that you can bless other people. But I tell you what, being conquered by a foreign hostile empire does not sound like blessing to me. And so some of the questions I might be thinking, if I was in ancient Israel, around the time of the prophet Isaiah, some of the questions I might be thinking are questions like, is this the end of Israel? Has God just given up on us? Some questions I might be asking are questions like, why is my suffering so great? I mean, is this suffering, is this pain so great that maybe finally I found where God can't actually heal me? Or why is my enemy so strong? If God has said he will bless us, but the Babylonians are cursing us, are the Babylonians stronger than God? And all of those, I think, are different forms of one really core existential question. Where is our God? If God has promised to bless his people, where is God right now? And I wonder, as you consider your own life, as you consider where it is that you're longing for comfort because you're finding so much discomfort, have you ever experienced the weight of these questions in your life? And I know that many of us, maybe all of us at some point have. We've all wrestled with that heavy burden of where is my God? Because the fact is, when we live in a world with as much discomfort as we live in, so often the pain and the struggle and the difficulty of that discomfort causes it to feel like God 
has left us. Turns out, uh, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, particularly if you read through the Psalms, every single one of these questions is actually named specifically by some of God's people. The Psalms are filled with prayers asking, why have you abandoned us, God? Why won't you heal my suffering? Why is my enemy apparently so strong? And God, where are you? So as we consider Advent a season of comfort and joy, in the midst of circumstances as discomfort, know this, no matter what questions your suffering might be causing you to ask, those are questions that God's people have asked for thousands of years. There's no question you could ask God that is too hard of a question for him to handle. But then we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what's the answer? Yeah, in the Psalms we read all these questions. In the prophet Isaiah we can see how the people might be asking these questions, but what is God's answer? And, you know, all sorts of answers might come to your mind. What will God say when his people question him? Will God say, no, 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 you just need more faith. You you just need more reasons to believe. Are those the answers that God gives to the questions of his people? It's certainly good and appropriate to think about our reason for believing in God. It's certainly good and appropriate to think about the content of our faith. But in this instance, when God's people are in the midst of some of the greatest discomfort in life. They are suffering some of the worst oppression ever. They can't worship at the temple. It's been destroyed. They can't visit with their relatives. They've been scattered around Babylon. When God's people are crying out and asking questions in that moment, here is the answer that God gives. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. That her sin has been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness... Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let that sink in for just a second. In ancient Israel, when they were at their moment of greatest distress and they cried out to God, God answered their distress by promising comfort and by speaking tenderly. And that word tenderly, it means with a tender heart, with a deep relational connection. God says, I will give you comfort. Does anybody long for a little comfort in their life during this Advent season? If so, 
then know this. In answer to the question, why is my suffering so great? God promises comfort to his people. God promises comfort to you. And so here's my hope. My hope is for the next four weeks of Advent. We can lean in. We can, we can make it a priority. We can grapple together with what does it look like for us to seek comfort only in God. If God promises comfort, that means I'm not going to look to the answers of the world around me. I'm not going to look to my own strength pulling myself up from the bootstraps. I'm going to look in one place and one place only for the comfort that I so long for in life. I am going to look to my God. And in this passage from the prophet Isaiah, we get three examples of how it is that God gives comfort. And I want to take just a couple minutes to consider these three examples from God of how he gave comfort to ancient Israel because I believe that the same comfort he gave to his people thousands of years ago is a powerful comfort for you today. First, God gives comfort by giving a hope for the future. The text said... Comfort, comfort my people. Proclaim to Israel that her hard service has been complete. Well, hard service is clearly referring to their suffering under Babylon. And then it says the service has been complete. Past tense. It's done. It's over. But we just acknowledged Isaiah 39 was written looking towards the conquering of, you know, Babylon taking over. And Isaiah 40 is written when Israel is under Babylon's rule. So when Isaiah says your service has been complete, if I was in ancient Israel, I might look around and go, what do you mean complete? The temple's still been destroyed. Jerusalem's still destroyed. I'm not in my own home. I'm not in my own country. This doesn't look like complete to me, God. And that's because, as we've talked about before and we'll keep talking about again, our hope is not based on what we can see with our own eyes and our hope is not based on what we can understand with our own minds. Our hope is not based on our circumstances, but rather our hope is based on God's promises. And so God speaks in that past tense because he's promising that he will bring about good for his people even when they can't see it. I mean, and we know what it is to look at this world and and, and feel hopeless like there's no path forward. I mean, for me, at the present moment, one of the most hopeless things is figuring out how I will ever brush my four-year-old daughter's hair. Her hair is a mess. And every time I try to brush it, she's like, no, daddy, you can't brush my hair. And every day that I don't brush her hair, it gets more snarly and tangled and impossible. And I just don't see a path forward. Okay, maybe God's talking about something bigger than how to brush my daughter's hair. 
But you and I both know that there's so many circumstances that we look at and we think to ourselves, I see no path forward in this place. And when we can't see a path forward, it's always a discomforting experience. And God comforts us by giving us hope for the future. Based not on what we can see, but on what we believe God can do. Second, God wants to provide comfort by giving us a vision of his justice. All of the images in the second half of this passage, making mountains low and rough places smooth, those are images of justice. Now, in order to unpack the comfort that comes from a vision of God's justice, I want to talk about something um, this morning that, uh, you know, I'm sure you woke up right when you got out of bed and you said, I really hope Carl talks about this this morning. Uh, I want to talk about the Christian understanding of sin. Everybody's favorite topic for a Sunday morning sermon. So whenever we talk about sin, we always have to begin at the beginning. Where do you begin? You always begin at the beginning. And in our Jesus-focused understanding of the world, the beginning is God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. And when God created everything, he created everything good. And that goodness was seen in the very ground that we walked on. The ground just produced food for us. We see evidence of the ground's ability to just naturally produce food in fruit trees that will literally just throw food down at you. You don't have to do anything, and fruit trees will just give you food to eat because God created them good. God created human relationships good. The first humans, Adam and Eve, had a perfect relationship. And God created his relationship with humans and creation. He created that good. So everything, humans, the earth, and God were in perfect connection with one another. However, that place that it began is not the place that it continued because Adam and Eve made a bad decision. They chose to turn their backs on God and go their own way. And by making that terrible first choice, a poison entered the world. In the Bible, we call that poison sin, but sin sometimes can get uh, reduced to too small of a word when it really can mean so many different things. That sin entered the very ground we live, or the ground we grow our food from, whereas now we have to work hard to produce food to eat from it. That sin entered our relationships with one another. I could unpack that, but I'm guessing you've been in a relationship that's been hard or broken in your life. And that sin entered our relationship with God, separating us, which we experience in so many forms of pain and suffering in our lives, that separation from God. And so a poison entered the world, and that poison has polluted us in many different ways. And I just want to talk about the impacts on us as humans of sin, because again, I think sometimes sin can get inappropriately reduced. So sin, first, has an individual aspect to it. The poison entered me, and that poison means I now, even though I know what good decisions are and I want to make good decisions, I still choose bad things often. And I'm now responsible for the bad choices 
for the hurtful, harmful, and destructive things I do in my life. Sin entered my life, and now I am culpable for the way that I choose to do sinful things. And we know that this individual responsibility and the individual brokenness of sin, we just see it around us in the way that humans are sadly so able to hurt and harm one another. But sin, this poison of the world, also came in beyond just the individual level. It exists in the very systems and structures of the world we live in. Paul talks about, in one of his New Testament epistles, he talks about the powers and principalities of this dark world. This poison goes beyond individual decisions, and it impacts whole systems and structures. When we talk about the way that throughout human history... Uh, racism has plagued entire uh, populations of people. When we talk about in our own country how certain institutions can have horrible negative consequences, we see the systemic power of sin. Heck, even when we see individuals making good choices, the systems of sin can still wreak havoc in our world. So sin, its poison is both individual and it's systemic. One of the ways I've experienced this in my own life is I think about how, you know, one of the designs of good, healthy relationships is for a man and a woman to be able to come together and and make new life by giving birth to a child. And that good relationship is designed to be just this most beautiful and joyful thing. And yet, as many of you know, Mickey and I, um, after having three kids and, and getting ready to have a fourth, uh, 17 weeks into a pregnancy, our baby, uh, his heart stopped beating, and that pregnancy miscarried. We named that baby Noah, and, and we think about him often. And so we ask ourselves, why is it that what was designed to be so good, new life, Why is it that sometimes death comes in? Is it because an individual sinned and did something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Did Micken do something wrong? No. I think it's because sin has entered the very physical world that we inhabit, and that poison can ruin even the beauty of childbirth through miscarriage. And so, considering the way that this system of sin, which is often referred to as injustice, considering how that injustice is one of the great causes of discomfort in our world, then we come back around to say, when we are suffering in our lives, God wants to comfort us by giving us a vision of his justice. He wants to tell us that the great mountains that we're climbing in our lives that seem unclimbable, he's going to level them out. The great valleys that open up that seem like an impossible chasm in the path in front of us, he's going to raise them up. The rough places, which is probably an image of ground that can't produce food, they're going to be turned into a plain where the grain can grow in abundance. God comforts us by giving us a vision of his justice. Last but not least, God comforts us with the promise of his presence. Because ultimately, 
The only true source of comfort in our life is the very presence of God with us. In the face of the suffering of His people, God's presence provides comfort. He points to that when he says, in, when the prophet says in Isaiah 40, uh, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it. That word glory, it, it means when the presence of God comes in. It's like when God walks in the room, it's impossible not to turn your head and say, oh man, somebody just came in the room. It's kind of like when my two-year-old Asa comes in the room and he stomps along and his hair is giant and blonde and curly and you can't help but stop and turn and say the glory of Asa's giant curly hair has just walked into the room. Well, if Asa can turn heads when he walks into the room, how much more will the glory of God and God's presence turn your head and give you comfort when you know that God is with you? It turns out that this truth that God's presence provides comfort, it was confirmed in so many ways, including Jesus himself, God on earth in human form. Some of the very last words he spoke before leaving his disciples. You might remember the scene, right? His disciples had been with him for years and had gone all in with him. We're going to follow you, Jesus. We're going to carry on your message. And then they lost all hope when Jesus died. But when Jesus came back to life, they said, yes, this is the way it's going to be. Jesus, we will be with you. We will minister with you. And then Jesus said, oh, just kidding. I'm actually leaving again. And his disciples were like, what do you mean you're leaving again? You already left once. You don't need to leave a second time. And as his disciples were trying to figure out what to do with this disappointment, Jesus said to them, and surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus was speaking about the presence of God in his Holy Spirit. Even though Jesus, as a physical person, was going to leave, the spiritual presence of God, Jesus promised, would be with us always. I looked up the original Greek of that word always. Do you know what it means? It means always. Not sometimes, not just when I remember it, not just when I feel like it, not just when my life is going well, not just when I bother to think about it. God says he is with us always, even to the very end of the age. So, that brings us to your move. It's Advent. For the next four weeks, we're going to prepare for our celebration of the coming of Christ on Christmas Day. And here's what I know about this Advent season and this Christmas holiday. I know that you already have a long to-do list, right? You're going to go, you got to put up Christmas lights this afternoon. You got to buy the ripped, a new replacement for the ripped stocking that you lost last year. You got to send out Christmas lifts to the aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas. You got to arrange Christmas dinners or Christmas Zoom dinners. You got to figure out whether or not you're going to travel. You've got a long list of things that you're going to do this Christmas season. And here's the risk that we all face. 
See, we have a lot of great traditions. I love Christmas traditions. I love all the things. And, and all of those to-do lists, I bet they're all great things. But the risk we run is if we're not careful, the whole season can be about the to-do list and we can forget the most important thing that this season is ultimately about God with us. So here's the question I want you to consider as we get ready for Advent. How will you prioritize God's presence this Advent? That word prioritize, it comes from the root prior, right? And prior means beforehand. How will you make the comfort that is found in the presence of God, how will you make that the thing that comes before everything else? I have a planner. Uh, this, is, this is my full focus planner. I use it every single day. And on every single page, the very top corner, you can't see it, that's fine, but the top corner, it's called the daily top three. And people who make planners know if I don't write down the most important thing, if I don't say, yeah, here's my whole list of all the stuff I want to do, but this thing has to happen first. If I don't make the priority, then the long list of other items is going to cause me to lose sight of the most important thing. So how are you going to prioritize God's presence this season? I've already mentioned We've created three different resources to try and help you with that. Uh, if you've got kids and his kids, the His Kids Advent resources. Engage that with your kids. Talk about God's presence with your family. If you've got middle school, high school students, the student reflection guides are awesome. Our student ministry team has made an awesome guide. Engage that with your students and talk about how is God's presence with us. Or get our brand new Centered Podcast. The very first episode is available already. It's right there. And at noon today, the second episode will drop. We're going to publish an episode every Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from now through Christmas Eve. The very first week is guided practices of breath prayer, just like we did this morning, where we simply breathed in, thank you, Lord, and we breathed out, giver of life. Breath prayer is a powerful way for you to prioritize God's presence this Advent season. So I want you to start writing an answer, thinking of an answer, coming up with an answer, telling your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, telling your kids, telling your friends, answer this question. How will the presence of God be the first priority prior to, before, everything else this Christmas season. Because here's what I know. When you make that the priority, when that comes first, then what you get is the presence of God in and with and amidst everything else that you're going to do anyway. And if we can prioritize God's presence this Advent, spend four weeks really creating space and time in our calendars, learning new practices of prayer, and as the psalmist said, being still to know that God is God. If we can do that, then when Christmas Eve comes, we're going to be able to all the more joyfully, 
all the, with all the more celebration, with all the more hope and excitement, embrace and proclaim the knowledge that when Christ is born, we know for certain that God is with us. And the knowledge of God with us is the only true and deep source of comfort and joy in life. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord. Giver of life. God, I pray right now for everybody listening to this message, whether right now or later on in the week or coming back to it, I pray for every single one of us, God, prompt us, call us, even right now in our heads and in our hearts, show us how to prioritize your presence this season. Help us to put it in our calendars and our planners and our to-do lists so that we might stop and remember and learn to embrace the true comfort that comes by knowing that you, our God, are always with us. Amen.